Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, week 38 of reading through the Bible in a year and walking with Jesus. Today, our Old Testament passage, um, it's going to be a good one. We are starting in uh, Song of Solomon. Oh, yeah. So, Aaron, um, what were your thoughts? What what should we be thinking besides the obvious when it comes to uh, to Song of Solomon? Because reading through it, you know, there's a lot there, somewhat at face value, but I feel like there's probably a good amount that I'm missing depth wise. I don't know. I didn't know what to think exactly. Yeah, why don't I bounce that back at you when you've oh. heard people preach through Song of Solomon or? teach through it what what are kind of the main points that they make how do they apply the text how how have you heard it talked about in ecclesial settings are you doing a joke right now because nobody ever preaches on it or teaches on it i've never heard anybody talk about it ever you know i haven't either okay that i assumed that's what you were getting at yeah and that's a problem it's in the bible the only time that i heard someone talk about it is when I was in this college class called The Christian Family, and the professor was telling us a story about how on his wedding night, he and his wife read through Song of Solomon prior to consummating their marriage. Mm -hmm. And that is about all that I've ever heard uh, formally taught on Song of Solomon. He recommended that to all of us for our own practice whenever we would get married. And um, I thought that was kind of weird. Yeah, it seems kind of corny. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, so... No, no, here's... Okay, okay. just you saying that, I think, uh, is a perfect example or it gets me right into my issue I have with how people think about the book or don't think about the book like oh the only time this is like actually probably appropriate is right before we're about to consummate our marriage now let's read through it and consider these things it's like that's so stupid in my opinion yeah i i think i'm mostly in agreement with you i i am not totally sure how to interpret this text but i don't think that the common way of talking about it or more commonly joking about it, is actually helpful or fitting with what the text is communicating. So I I would want to say that Song of Solomon functions as uh, essentially Proverbs 1 through 7, except directed towards young women instead of young men. So I think it is trying to cultivate an attitude of marital fidelity and Um, provides a warning to resist the charms of, in this case, a harem. Okay. Whereas in Proverbs, it's resisting the charms of a prostitute. The harlot. Yep. Oh, dude, I like the alliteration. So Song of Solomon warns against harem life, and then Proverbs warns against harlotry. Yeah. The harlot life. Yeah. That's interesting. I had not heard that or thought of that but yeah i mean that's interesting it's kind of a take one for each one for each side a warning as it were so maybe it would be helpful if i just briefly walk through the way that i think song the the book flows yes please do now i i have to say that i am relying on a guy named miles van pelt who wrote an article on song of songs that i found really convincing So I think the book starts out, and I'm essentially just articulating what he argues for. I think in chapters one through two, there's a temptation to a woman to join Solomon's harem. So he is talked about in verses two through four, where the harem is trying to entice a young woman to join them. And they're talking about how great of a lover this guy is. And then the woman responds in verse 5 to these daughters of Jerusalem. These are the women in the the harem. And she pretty much says that she's not qualified. But then the harem responds that um, this guy is 
um, worthy, you know, she should come and find him, you know, uh, she herself is enticing. So they think even though you're saying you're not qualified to be in the harem, you are, you're beautiful enough to be in here. Um, and then the woman responds again in chapter two, and she's essentially praising exclusive love. Um, she's saying, look, there's somebody else who I love and I want to remain faithful to that guy instead of joining the harem. And then her true love arrives in chapter 2, verse 8, and he's described as the shepherd. Um, So he's here. He's locked out of the harem. Um, So he's someone on the outside. Um, And then uh, the shepherd calls this woman who the harem's trying to entice to return to him. So you can imagine, we'll pause here in a second, but, but you can imagine that there's a harem, you know, this gathering of women, and there's a potential harem candidate, a beautiful young woman who's in the harem court. They're trying to convince her that this is a really good and luxurious life. You should pursue this. And she tells them, but there's actually a guy I love. And I think I need to live in fidelity to that guy. That guy shows up and he's locked outside of the walls and he's calling out to her, resist the charms of the harem life and come to me. So, um, so where is that part that you're referencing? Where So like when it kind of says he, is there like two different he's? Kind yeah, of? The, I think there are two he's. One oh. is the Lord of the harem, and then one is the true love. Okay. So in chapter 2, verse 8, the woman who's being enticed says, listen, my love is approaching. Look, here he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My love is like a gazelle or a young stag. See, he is standing behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My love calls to me. So that's her true love calling mm. her resist temptations of the harem. Like, And you have to remember that in the harem life, this woman would be well provided for. She'd have a luxurious life, uh, but she'd just be another woman in the king's harem. The shepherd, you know, or this true love is calling her to return to him. And then she vows commitment. So she listens to him. And in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, says, My love is mine and I am his. So she decides to commit to him. Um, And then it kind of shifts in chapter 3 to a dream that this woman has. And it's a dream of longing and desire. So it gets a little bit... um, risque in some of these descriptions and you know uh especially the further we go but um she's essentially dreaming of her true love and um in verse five of chapter three she speaks to the women of the harem and essentially says leave me alone you know i'm i'm not going to listen to your temptation but then and that's what the line uh not Do, not stir up or awaken yeah. love until it pleases. Yep, yep. That's what she's saying. Yeah. Okay. And again, this is all pretty poetic. Sure. But then in verse six, the harem guy, probably Solomon, is appearing. So he's coming on the scene. So the woman passed the test of the harem. She listened to the voice of her lover. And now Solomon and his whole army is showing up. He's got his carriage. He's got, you know his whole retinue of soldiers. And then in verse 11 of chapter three, um, pretty much the virgins assemble before him. And Solomon then starts speaking to this woman who's being enticed to join the harem. He tells her, chapter four, verse one, you're really beautiful. Um, And he describes her that body pretty much as you go through chapter four. So chapter four would be... Solomon or the other guy, yeah, harem, harem leader, harem guy, okay. is talking that whole time. I think all the way through chapter four, and um, even into chapter five, verse one, where he's saying, "Come, be intoxicated with caresses," you know. But then the woman has another dream of longing and desire, which is sort of her response to that temptation. So instead of becoming enthralled with Solomon, she dreams of her true love. So chapter 5, verse 2, a sound, my love was knocking. And um, it's really this somewhat erotic dream, actually, that takes place there. And because... Which which is okay. 
Well, because there are children who sometimes are within the sound of their parents' phone that's playing this, mm-hmm. I won't get into it. But if you read it carefully, you can pretty well imagine what's being described there. Um, and then once again, there's a word from this woman to the other women in the harem where she charges them in chapter 5, verse 8, that if you find my love, the guy who's been locked out by Solomon, tell him that I'm lovesick. Tell him that I haven't given in to the temptations of the harem master. Um, and then the the harem tempts her again. You know, they kind of question why. So verse 9 of chapter 5, what makes the one you love better than another? Um, what makes him better that you would give us this charge to tell him you're going to remain faithful to him. And then the woman responds in verses 10 through 16 with a description of why this guy is better, of her desire for this guy. Then in chapter 6, it shifts again to the harem talking, um, saying pretty much saying, look, where has your guy gone in 6.1? And then she responds in verses 2 and 3 with commitment again. And then starting in verse 4, Solomon issues a second temptation to her, um, trying to draw her in. Uh, But then in verse 11, the woman responds by resisting temptation and leaving the harem. Solomon responds in verse 13 with another temptation. Verse 13, come back, come back, Shulamite, or the perfect one, the peaceable one. So he's trying to woo her back once again. And again, in um, chapter 7, verse 10, so that goes all the way through 7, verse 9, chapter 7, verse 10, she responds again with commitment. I am my love's and his desire is for me. And then she calls for her lover to return. Verse 11, come my love, let's go to the field. Let's spend the night among the henna blossoms. And I think as you like get into some of this, there's a lot of romantic language once again. And once again, in chapter 8, verse 4, she tells the the women of the harem, I'm not going to listen to you. So then we get to chapter 8, verse 5, and the woman arrives at the place where she's going to meet the man. So that's what's going on in 8, 5 through 14. And there's some instruction, some wisdom-wise saying along the ways. But ultimately, in chapter 8, verses 11 and following, There's a rejection of Solomon. Uh, You know, Solomon has his vineyard. And again, this is like metaphorical language for his body pretty much. Um, But she says that she has her own and um, that she's not going to capitulate to his temptations. And then at the very end there in verses 13 and 14, there's this invitation um, to the wisdom of a faithful marriage. Um, so you who dwell in the gardens, companions are listening to your voice. Let me hear you. Run away with me, my love, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. So it's pretty much like this poetical way of talking about um, the beauty of a committed marriage versus harem life. So that's kind of the way that I understand this book. Um, I don't know, Matthew. How does that hit you? Uh, that's... That's very helpful because I didn't read through it that way. I did not really catch that the he was a, two different he's. Uh, but as you walked through it, that made that made a lot more sense. It kind of made the book make more sense because I didn't I didn't know what to make of it because mm-hmm. there was a little bit of. If you think it's just one guy, there's some some yes, some no, some back and forth, and you're like, what's going on? Why is she like being fickle? Yeah, why is she being so coquettish? Yeah, uh, cokeheadish. Coquettish. Oh, I thought you said cokeheadish. No, not cokeheadish, but coquette. Oh, I don't know what they do in a harem, but yeah. So I I ended up in my Bible like scratching out where the CSB wrongly, in my opinion, labels the speakers, and then I just wrote who's actually speaking. But it can get confusing if you're following the headings that are placed there. As you were going through it i felt like mine was close to right just when it said he Mm -hmm. i didn't know which he it was yep but no that's that's no that's helpful yeah so again i'm just relying on this guy who wrote an article about it that i found 
really convincing in the best explanation of the book that I've ever heard. Yeah. Well, and to go along with that, like we said, I've never heard any explanation of the book because people avoid it, which I think just avoiding things is stupid and it doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes people have the wrong idea that any woman who's in a harem was forced to be there. That's probably true in in a lot of instances, but clearly in some instances, there's an option to choose to enlist in harem life or to refuse to. And in this case, she has the option and wisdom, the better part of wisdom says, pursue life in a faithful marriage, even if that guy's not going to be super wealthy. Live in fidelity with that guy instead of accepting all of the riches and luxury of harem life and, and just being another um, prop in this guy's collection. So you're saying it's not accurate that Nobody chooses harem life. Harem life chooses them. You're saying you know sometimes, sometimes that is the case, (laughs) but not always, and clearly not in this instance. Yeah, well, it proves it. Yep. Okay. Well, one thing I found a bit amusing, I guess, in my own way, is certain verses or certain parts. As I read it, I'm like, hmm, what does that mean? Check the footnotes footnotes playing dumb i don't think that they address what's actually being said yeah probably because it involves some level of innuendo right why and again why can't they say that this is probably also intended as a form of innuendo like what's wrong with saying that yeah i mean i think you're always going to be selective in the amount of notes that you can have so you're not including everything that you could say um they avoided it on purpose i just but they're probably also avoiding it yes and you know this came up when i was studying esther there are a ton of sexual innuendos in there that just don't get noted and you'll only really come across them if you are knowledgeable in hebrew or if you're reading commentaries and um, that's probably the case with some of these, though a lot of them are just so obviously yeah. innuendos that you don't need a note to explain it. Right. You can just figure it out. Right. I guess that's whether it's with Esther or Song of Solomon and all that. That I guess that's just a pet peeve of mine is when people just ignore things, avoid it because they're like, this is awkward or, oh, this might not be appropriate. Yeah, it, and especially in this instance, it's like, well, both instances, it's like they're, they're books in the Bible, and what's wrong with considering them for their full content for what they really are? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just don't, I don't get what people think, what good it does to ignore parts that you just don't like or feel uncomfortable about. Yeah, I think that's right on the whole. Um, so, yeah. You know, maybe they're just thinking if you need to, if you need to ask, you don't need to know, but maybe that's why study Bibles exist is to help fill in some of the gaps here. But, um, I can certainly sympathize with these people because it's hard to know how much detail to give or not give. And, um, that, that is a tough question sometimes. Well, all right. That's our next project. We're going to do our own translation and study bible and we will give full footnotes okay are you down you're gonna have to do like 99 percent of the work but well you can translate it it. into the common vernacular for me there we go but yeah i feel like we could probably spend a year or so on that and it'll be a good project for us to do in person here together yeah well we'll sell thousands of copies we'll call it the real bible oh yikes well, this would just be one book book of the Bible. Oh, I thought we were doing it for the whole Bible. Also, did you? I think didn't Marvin Gaye didn't his dad shoot him? I think so. Who's Marvin Gaye? Well, that was our intro song at the beginning of the podcast. Oh, yeah, I have no idea. Oh, okay. But that sounds terrible and sad. Yeah, I think I think Marvin was like going off the deep end a little bit, and his dad just kind of like took him out. So I just wanted to 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 discuss that briefly yeah. at least. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that we discussed that briefly um, be- because I think there's something about song right usage on podcasts where we need to discuss the song. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was very fitting for the intro to uh, Song of Solomon. Well, I 
As we turn our attention to 2 Corinthians, Paul is communicating that he won't give up on the Corinthian church, and he talks a lot about the ministry of reconciliation and the relationship that he's forged with them. So, um, Matthew, why don't you lead us in our discussion of 2 Corinthians? <laughs> that's one option. <laughs> okay, that's option A. Right here. You know, Aaron, as long as Paul and the Corinthians had each other, they could get through anything with the Lord. You know what I mean? I think so. I think so. Now, I think... You didn't like that one as well? I love it. No, that's great. Now, I think, you know, speaking of that song, we should have invited the Reverend Paul Perdue onto the podcast for this section because he preached through 2 Corinthians at the Eden Baptist Church. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was a big Dusty Springfield fan. Well, I'm not sure what to think of the start of the book of 2 Corinthians, so uh, I'm going to throw it back to you, Aaron. Why don't you get us going? Yeah, I just want to remind our listeners that Paul has an ongoing relationship with the church at Corinth. So in Acts chapter 18, he established the church there, and then he wrote probably at least four letters to them. Uh, So if you remember back in 1 Corinthians 5, he referenced a letter that he had written earlier. So out of these, at a minimum of four letters, we only have two of them that are in existence, and both of them are in our Bibles. This is the second one that we have. That's why it's named 2 Corinthians. And here he's just dealing with a lot of relational issues with them, and um, then appealing to them to support him in his ministry. So I I know that there's a lot more in Second Corinthians. There are some things that I don't quite understand or know how to talk about. So for example, his description of the new covenant ministry in Second Corinthians three, where he he um, talks about this new phase of of uh, the covenant life before God. But then also he says, you guys are my letters of recommendation. So there's just a lot going on here, and I don't have a lot of commentary on it. One thing that stuck out to me in 2 Corinthians is just the night and day difference in writing style between Song of Solomon and then 2 Corinthians. This is like letter to a group of people. I'm talking about all this stuff that I need to address with you versus, you know, like poetry or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was like, you know, very jarring to go from one to the other. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, And and I would even point out that I think there's a difference in writing style between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. mm. So 1 Corinthians, he's doing more to correct issues and... Um, in or in First Corinthians, he's doing more to correct issues in the church. In Second Corinthians, it just sounds more like he's working to restore a relationship with them and to then get them to participate in his ministry through financial cooperation. And that's what I was wondering because, I mean, I guess uh, enough things get referenced in here, but I'm like, I I don't really know. There's like a whole context of the current day when Paul was writing this and like in the back of his mind, he knows all of the problems or issues or questions that he needs to address, which he does, but I'm just like kind of blank on the other side of not, not the other side of the argument, but just on the other side of what's going on. Yeah. And I think that's just one of the parts of reading through the Bible in a year where we're reading bigger chunks and we just don't have the time to really get into all of those things. So hopefully just getting the information in our brains will help us whenever we're able to study these parts in more depth at another time in our lives. So I had one question about a couple of verses, uh, four, I guess it's three, four, 16 through 18. Um, And it reminded me of something you said, I think it was last week, just about... Um, I don't want to misquote you, but not about like 
caring about stuff in the here and now and not being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You kind of, you know, made that quote, which I thought your point was very good. And those three verses could almost sound like, well, everything here is kind of pointless. It's passing away. You need to be heavenly minded. Like Mm -hmm. you could almost take it that way. And I don't think that's the way it's intended. So like what would be the proper way of taking those three verses to like, to get what's intended out of them? Yeah. I think that Paul is trying to say, be all in where you are. Like, even though there are experiences in this life where you're, you know, and he's talking about themselves, where they're being persecuted, destroyed, they're not going to despair. They're not going to give up, verse 16. Instead, they're going to keep pursuing the work of the Lord on earth as as they go through these hard things. And they're motivated by this heavenly agenda, but they're living fully in the present life, knowing that whether they're in this body on this earth or with God, um, that they're with the Lord. So I think that's kind of what's going on here. Okay. I was just wondering, because it's, I mean, it says like, we are not to look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And one could just take that as, Oh, the scene in the here now is pointless. Focus on what's eternal. You know what I mean? But I know that's not what he's saying. Yeah. But it could be taken that way, I feel like, easily. Yeah, it could be taken that way, but I think it's the opposite of that. So I think what he's talking about is these people are looking at him and seeing this guy who's being persecuted, who's not super wealthy, and they could look at him and say, you're a failure, and we don't want to hitch our wagon to you because then we're going to look like failures, and we want to look like success stories. And Paul's pretty much saying, hey, what looks like a failure now will prove to be a success on the final day. So even even though it looks like things are bad, this is actually God's plan to bring about his kingdom on earth. And uh, so we are not going to give up. So we're, we're not focusing on what looks like it's a failure. We're not focusing on the seen, but what's unseen, which is the glory that will be revealed in the future. So I think comparably, maybe a uh, way to illustrate this would be several years ago um, when I was just, you know, when Josh and I were early on here, we went through this really uh, hard situation and the stress of it caused a large chunk of my beard to fall out. And there was a feeling of like, man, the outer man is fading away. Like this is stressful and it, we feel like failures. And then I was talking with somebody, and I think they were well-intentioned, but they they told me, you need to give up at Crystal Lake, and you need to leave, because it's like your body is being physically harmed by the stress of this experience. And, and I think that's probably like a small level comparable to what these Corinthian Christians are saying to Paul. Like, look, dude, you're going, you're being persecuted, you're, you're like, suffering. This is not glory. You promise this glory with Christ. Uh, you need to just quit. But he's saying, no, I'm not going to give up. It looks like failure right now, but glory is going to come of it. And that's kind of what I wanted to tell this guy who was telling me, hey, stop allowing this the hardship of this church to negatively affect you or come to your detriment. You should just leave it. I wanted to say to him, no, I'm not going to give up because what looks like failure now and what's filled with suffering right now, I believe can result in flourishing and glory. So I don't know if that helps yeah. like, set the stage, but I think that's kind of what's going on. Okay. That makes sense because yeah, later on it, he talks about how many times he's been beaten or flogged or shipwrecked or lost at sea. So they're looking at all that and being like, dude, like just give it up. Like this isn't going well. Yeah. And you have to remember going back to first Corinthians that these are the people who were all about Apollos and all of these other really good speakers. And they're the people who are wealthy, who are discriminating against the poor at the Lord's supper. So these are people who care a lot about their image and their image isn't being helped by their connection to Paul. And I think that frames a lot of what goes on, especially in chapters one through five, where he's essentially saying, look, we love you guys. We're, we're doing 
good ministry, you're like proof that our ministry is not wasted because you exist. You're, you're a living letter of recommendation. So I think a lot of it has to do with some of these interpersonal issues, self-image issues, and um, that would maybe guide our interpretation and application of these texts. All right, I've got a different question for you. Do you think there are more wheels in the world or more doors? That question does not compute. Just which one do you think? I mean, if you look right now, we got like five or six wheels on our chair right now. There's only one door in this room. But are there other spots where you think there are more doors where it would add up? I have no idea. I don't either. But based on your brief observation, at least in this room, there are more wheels than doors. But I don't know about our whole building. All right. That's tough because we do actually have a decent number of doors in this building. And we have extra doors in the storage room that aren't even being used. There's not a lot of wheels in the sanctuary. There are more doors. Or are there chairs? Do the Well, the sound booth chairs all have wheels. So those have wheels. There there have gotta be more wheels. We have kitchen carts. We have wheels on all those room dividers. Get all these desk chairs. We have our dollies. I, I, I went with wheels. I can't yeah. prove it, but I said wheels. We've got a lawnmower with four wheels in here. Yeah. Pro- probably wheels. What made you think of this question? Uh, it was a question on like the big board at the St. Paul Saints game. Oh, nice. So they didn't really have an answer either, which I was a little bit disappointed about. We should add that to one of our workday projects. Assign someone to count all the wheels and someone else to count all the doors. Amen. Fruitful labor. It doesn't look like it's fruitful. No. But, but that's where the glory is. Right, right. It may seem transient, but it has an eternal purpose. Mm, that none of us know about yet. <laughs> okay, Aaron, I have kind of a question. I don't know. It's just kind of like I'm starting a stone down the hill. We'll see where it rolls. You know what I mean? Uh, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And you could kind of go a little bit above it. But Paul's talking about grieving them. But he grieved them, uh, from what I gathered, because he was correcting them, and they were grieved to repentance, which is a good thing. We should be grieved to repentance. I guess as a, as a pastor, as a flock leader, as a bishop, a man of the cloth, is that something you think about a lot or think about needing to do a lot is like I might need to whatever correct this person and it like they might not like it they might be grieved by it but you know based on how I do it and I'm doing it out of good faith I'm coming from a place of truth I'm okay with grieving them because I think that it could essentially like in this passage grieve them to repentance and help correct them I guess what are your thoughts on that and how do you how how do you approach that in the position that you're in? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um I think I've seen a lot of pastors who pastor at one speed, which is always rebuking everybody. And I think there's a way to grieve people that's just either mean-spirited or not really tactful or not considerate, and I don't like that and I don't want to do that. I think that there are different speeds of pastoring, you might say, for different situations. And sometimes you probably do need to be a little bit more pointed, and um, that might result in grief or hurt feelings or something like that. Um, But even in those situations, I think if it's motivated by love, you can say the kinds of things that Paul says um, where you don't regret it, even though it's a tough thing, like you're recognizing this was a hard situation that I spoke into and I spoke into it in a clear way and a challenging way and, and that hurt, but it's the faithful wound of a friend. It's not animosity or mean spirited. It's, it's just the surgeon going to work and cutting in. And sometimes that hurts. I don't think that's needs to happen every time. 
and in every situation. But yeah, I think there are definitely, definitely times when, when that happens. Um, I think pastors can sometimes operate only that way, but then at other times pastors might be afraid of hurting someone's feelings. So they never are as direct as they should be. And they're not calling people as clearly to faith and repentance as they should. So there are probably a lot of errors that we could make. And, um, I think that, yeah, it's a hard, hard line to walk, hard to exercise discernment and know how to relate to people. Yeah, it's kind of what I was thinking that it's probably tricky to balance of not being too heavy-handed and not being too, whatever, permissive or lenient or whatever. Um, and also, I feel like sometimes the big, at not not at the Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota, but potentially at other churches, you kind of notice the ones with the deep pockets, they don't get corrected as much because you don't want to make them mad and have all those funds leave. So that's like a whole other issue of not uh, not properly guiding the flock because that one's producing a ton of wool for you or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I think that happens and um, that shouldn't happen. You know, that's essentially the same thing as taking a bribe and, you know, and it's just not fitting for pastors to operate that way, but it definitely does happen here. It could happen. Um, but I'm thankful that we as a church essentially inherited property. So unlike some church plants where those pastors might feel like I can't make anyone mad because we have to get a certain amount of people and we can only view them as giving units here. We don't really have those same concerns because we've been really blessed with the property and yeah, we need people and we need finances flowing, but um, I think it's easier to resist that temptation because of the blessings Scott has given us in church property, a personage where we're not so worried about our financial situation. That's true. And also we just don't like, I don't think Josh and I are trying to get rich off of this gig. Like we want to be able to provide for our families, that kind of thing. But definitely in this season of our church's life where Kate and I don't have kids. She works. You know, if I lose some money because our church loses the wealthy couple, whoever that might be, I don't know. That's another thing. None we're, of the none of the pastors at our church know who gives what amount. We're, we're still praying for the wealthy couple. Yeah, we're come here. yeah. So if you're listening, um, but we don't see what people give. Now we could all just make assumptions, but that's dangerous because I think there could be really wealthy people at a church who are stingy and then like genuinely like low income people who give really sacrificially, who might give more than that stingy wealthy couple. So appearances are always deceiving. There's no way for us to know that, but we're just, I think not really concerned about making a ton of money here. Uh, That's kind of a, it's, that's a happy coincidence that you brought that up because that was the other thing I kind of wanted to ask about or again start another stone down the hill and see where it rolls chapter 9 talks about a cheerful giver and it says one must give as he decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver Um, and I forget where it's exactly somewhere else in here talks about reaping and sowing. And if you sow generously, you reap generously. Just, uh, just kind of that, that whole thing. And I guess, I guess it's a question. Again, I've been at several different churches and I've been at churches that are like not bashful at all about preaching about giving and sowing a seed to the Lord so that you can be blessed and this, that, and the other. And uh, that would definitely, I think, kind of fall under when people maybe give a little bit reluctantly or they're being manipulated into giving more, which is not good at all. Uh, But then at the same time, um, I don't know, sometimes I fear that some churches don't talk enough about giving just in, in the positive way of, God loves a cheerful giver, pray about it, decide in your heart what you should give and give it and be happy about it and trust that the Lord will take care of you 
over the course of your life and he will bless you as he sees fit. I don't know. I just feel like there's very positive ways to talk about giving and to just encourage people to give, not like, well, make sure you're giving this amount, make sure you're giving this percentage, but just highlighting like the truth and the blessing kind of like in passages like this and many other ones that are behind giving. Cause like, I don't know, sometimes I, I know like the, the, some churches, they give kind of everybody a bad rap because some people do think, Oh, I'm not going to church. I just want your money. And so it's like, you know, some churches kind of make everybody look bad to where people get really sensitive to it. But then I, I fear that there can be an overcorrection where the, the positives and the blessings and what, God has to say about giving in a very positive way, those don't really get addressed. Mm-hmm. How, like, what, what do you think about that? Yeah. Do you think that we've overcorrected at the res? I think maybe a little. And, and if for no other reason, I like, I don't know that I've heard it talked about really much ever. Yeah. We don't really talk about it that yeah. much. Maybe we have overcorrected and we, you know, we have offering boxes in the back, so we don't really pass offering plates. We don't talk about it that often. We yeah. don't put the monthly giving in the bulletin, though we do an update in our family discussion forum. But you're probably right. We probably don't talk about it as much as we could because of that um, sensitivity towards people who have been ruined by other churches who right. talk about it the wrong way. Though I seem to recall in Josh's Philippians, one of his last Philippian sermons, that he dealt with a text that talked about giving. And he really leaned into it. And I was like, oh, man, I'm glad he was preaching that because I would have felt awkward calling people to give money in obedience to this text. But um, ne- th- Necessarily grieving them yeah, with the truth. Yeah. So I, I guess I, w- I want to uh, point out two things. Number one, I'd point out that often I hear churches say things like, you should give now because God's going to give you more money down the road. So if you if you give a lot of money in the offering today, God's going to bless you with something, some more money, a bigger house, a better life. And they kind of manipulate people that way. And they say things that sound kind of right, but actually aren't in the Bible at all. Right. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to point out is that the blessing that's promised, especially in this text, is righteousness. It's not that you're going to get a raise at your job next week because you tithed a lot this week. So the logic of it is that God's grace will overflow to you, um, always having everything you need. You may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So he's drawing a parallel between God giving freely and the preservation of his righteousness, and Christians who give freely, and the harvest of righteousness that will come out of their sacrificing. So it's righteousness that's the reward and the blessing, not a bigger paycheck someday or a better house. Uh, so I I just want to say, yeah, we probably need to talk more about the spiritual blessings that come through faithful and sacrificial giving the blessings that come to the giver, but then the blessings that go beyond the giver as God's kingdom is established elsewhere. That's a context Paul's getting into. But I just really want to avoid saying things like, um, if you give the seed of your tithe, God will give you a fruit tree of a nice life down the road. Right. I'd, I'd want to say God will preserve your righteousness and give you the blessing of righteousness. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. But, and I mean, I know, I, I don't know specifically, but I know elsewhere. I mean, it talks about, in some form or fashion, you know, that God notices it, He sees it, you will be blessed. What that is, what God sees fit to bless you and how, it's like, who knows? It very well might not have anything to do with monetary, you know, monetary something or possessions, this, that, or the other, you know. And like you're saying in this passage, it says, you know, blessed with righteousness. And I don't know. But again, that's great. It's like, don't we all want to be helped to become more righteous? And it's like, well, this is a good thing. Like, I need to focus on giving what I determine in my heart so I can give cheerfully to the Lord and be 
in a in a right headspace about that and it's like yeah it does kind of help help lead you to righteousness when you're focusing on that focusing on giving to god instead of worrying about yourself or just keeping it all i don't know some of that stuff yeah i I, think i think that's right and i think you know pastors and and i'm talking to myself here can help their church members grow in godliness by encouraging them to go through the process of giving away the wealth of this world so that they can learn to value the wealth of the kingdom, righteousness and peace and grace. So I think God uses our giving to help us value the right things. So we give up money so that we'll learn to value righteousness. And the way we learn to value righteousness is through giving up money. So maybe pastors could be guilty of uh, keeping their church members from growing in grace simply because they're afraid to call them to devalue money through giving it for kingdom advance. So I think that's a good word. Um, And if I ever preach through 2 Corinthians, I will definitely um, have this conversation in mind. You can lean into it. You can put your body Lean into, into it. it. Yep. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, at our church, we are ending the year, our fiscal year. And we have talked a lot about our giving campaign. And by a lot, I mean like two sentences in each monthly meeting. And maybe we need to talk about that more. But even today, you know, my wife reached out to Brian to figure out how much we have left on our pledge. And as I was like, oh man, that's more than I thought. Um, it's like, oh wait, this is a way that God will teach me to value money less and the growth of His kingdom more. And and pastors could wrongly manipulate people that way for their own selfish gain. But um, well, yeah, even yeah. something like with a giving campaign, it can be like, look, right here where it says in Second Corinthians, just between you and God determining in your heart what you're going to give and just be able to give it cheerfully. And then that's the right amount to give. Yeah. I don't know. And we talked about it like that. Okay. And I think that one of the problems with giving campaigns though, is that you can subtly teach people to still value the things of earth and just say, value the better things of earth. So give us your money so we can have a super posh building to meet in every week. Well, that's not teaching people to value righteousness. It's teaching people to value comfort just to locate that comfort in the church instead of in your home. And and that's a problem as well. And it's hard to know how to communicate clearly to people on this because of all of the background baggage that they're bringing as soon as you start talking about giving. Yeah. But I appreciate you pushing me to um, not overreact. Yeah. Talk about money, talk about giving. I won't be offended. I'll I'll give you an amen on a Sunday morning. <laughs> That's the kind of giving we'll be requesting. Amen. Please brother. give us amens. Amen. Don't Bishop. worry about giving money. Well, also give money. I'll I'll say it. I'll say it so you don't have to say it. Yeah. Deter- everybody, determine what you will give unto the Lord and give cheerfully. Amen. I'll give an amen. Be generous. So generously. So uh, I guess the final thing I found very interesting. I think we, I th- I think we we touched on this, but I didn't know. I guess I hadn't read this. I had always heard, oh, I have a Paul saying I have a thorn in my flesh, and I asked three times for it to be taken, and God said something about grace is sufficient and weakness, something like that. But before that, it's because. He had some like crazy information given to him, right? Is it was like what taken up and had visions and revelations? Did he just get like was there an episode where he just got all this divine knowledge just like downloaded into him that nobody else has? Yeah, so this is a really bizarre text. And even the way that Paul talks about it, it seems like he's being a little coquettish himself where he's talking about himself, but he says, I know a man who had this happen to him, but he's actually talking about himself is what most people believe. And you're right. Then it connects to that. uh, There's the vision of glory, but then there's also the suffering in, in this life, how to put all that together, what he saw or learned. I don't know. 
Um, but he is not permitted to talk about it. And um, then he says, I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weakness. And it's almost like he's talking about him like experiencing this glorious state, and he's not going to boast about that spiritual experience. Instead, he's going to boast about his suffering as spiritual experience. What we should learn from all of that, I don't know, but I think it does call us to just live faithfully as Christians with all of our flaws and weaknesses and not to get this idea that to be a genuinely good Christian is to be experiencing glory and grandeur all the time, but really just to suffer well in the regular course of our lives. Um, I was talking with somebody a few weeks ago who was telling me that he prays all the time that he'll have this kind of experience. And I just tried to tell him, I think that's actually the opposite of what this text is intending to get you to do. This text is trying to get you to say, like, be content to live as a normal Christian. Like, sometimes we get those spiritual highs, but more often we're called to live faithfully in the lows, and and that's where we're at. But as that, you know, great tattoo teaches us, God is greater than our highs and lows. And, and I think that's what Paul is teaching us, is just to pursue faithfulness to God wherever you're at. Does, did that jive with what you were looking for? Or yeah, what? I just didn't know what to think okay. about it. Yeah, I don't so know. like Paul just had all this extra knowledge from God that nobody else was allowed to know about. Could be. That's what it sounds like. Well, what, he at least experienced say? and saw something. You know, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a human being is not allowed to speak. Yeah, he wasn't allowed to speak it. Yeah. So I think we have to also place this within the context of First Corinthians, where there are people speaking in tongues and languages that aren't known. And or that maybe are known, you know, that's really complicated as well. And Paul is talking to people who want to live in a spiritual high with all of these unique gifts and experiences. And here he's saying, like, that's not like the, uh, the main focus of the Christian life. Just a little coquettish. Coquettish, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that you're... <laughs> trying back to that. Thank you for joining us. This is the Resurrection Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about all things Resurrection Church, you can visit our website, resurrectionmn.org.